Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Governor Ron DeSantis weighs in on Florida's redistricting process with his own map. The feud between DeSantis and Trump escalates as Roger Stone gets involved. And the Florida Senate advances controversial new legislation restricting how race is taught in schools. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson. And those are some of the stories I'll be discussing today with Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy and Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Finns. But first... It's pick a number time. Gentlemen, uh, you have some numbers for us today. How about you, John? Zach, I sure do. My number this week, as uh, as LeBron James once said, it's not one, it's not two, but three. How about you, Antonio? Yeah, I came in actually one under John, two. I thought John would be a lot higher. All right, we got some low numbers today. I'm uh, going to go a lot higher with 72,073. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, one of the biggest issues in Florida politics this year is the redrawing of congressional and legislative districts, which could increase GOP control of those chambers. There was an unusual redistricting twist this week when DeSantis's office submitted its own redistricting map. John, what's going on here? Governors don't usually get this directly involved in redistricting, do they? Yeah, no, you're right, Zach. Uh, this is sort of a first uh, since uh, Florida governors historically haven't gotten involved at all in proposing maps. But but yeah, you know, DeSantis is different. And he's uh, submitted proposed boundaries for the state's congressional districts, which is uh, the only plan that he is authorized to act on. The, uh, the House and Senate redistricting plans do not need his approval. But uh, DeSantis can veto whatever uh, congressional plan is put before him. So uh, the governor is a big figure in this. And what he's proposing is radically different from what the uh, Senate is seeking and uh, really what we've seen so far from the House. Uh, DeSantis would cut the state's four districts that are seen as likely to elect a black member of Congress. He'd cut that to only two. And he would set aside five Hispanic-leaning districts. That would be up from the current four seats. But many experts say that the number of Hispanic voters that he puts in these districts is not enough to elect a Hispanic representative uh, of the community's choice. Um, So it's suspect uh, whether these are truly minority access districts. And, uh, you know, in this uh, kind of arcane world of uh, redistricting uh, covered by state and federal law, the Voting Rights Act, though it's been diminished, is still uh, in force. Uh, You you can't really roll back the number of minority uh, heavy districts that you have in a state. Uh, without good reason. And well, I guess we may see what the governor's reasons are. We haven't really heard them yet. Um, the, you know, another significant difference is the DeSantis map is seen as likely to elect 18 Republican members of Congress from Florida. That's against 10 Democrats. The Senate map would 
elect 16 Republicans. So the, the DeSantis map is more Republicans going to Washington. Uh, currently, there's uh, 16 members of Congress uh, who are Republicans from, from Florida. Uh, so the Senate map doesn't increase that, that share. Um, and remember, Republicans are nationally pushing for control of Congress, and DeSantis and state Republicans have have clearly been getting pressured to you know maximize the state's Republican chances here. And uh, DeSantis's map uh, seems uh, you know ready to meet that goal. Um, now, to be clear, you know the governor didn't submit this map. Instead, it was his general counsel Ryan Newman that did uh, submitted it on Sunday, but it. Um, clearly reflects the uh, governor's thinking. Uh, the Senate this week, though, ignored DeSantis's map and proceeded with his own map, which maintains the state's four black and four Hispanic performing districts, which some critics say, you know, even that level is not enough in a state where more than half the increase in the state's population over the past 10 years is attributed to Hispanic population growth. Um, the Senate is... Uh, clearly looking not to retrogress, as it's called, that, that's rolling back these minority districts. Uh, that, that is, as I mentioned, something considered illegal under federal and state law that covers redistricting. You, you, you cannot easily reduce the number of seats that are considered highly uh, likely to elect a minority community's representative of choice. But, um, but that appears to be what the governor is doing, and uh, he carries that big veto stick. So, uh, his thinking is worth acknowledging, and the House uh, hasn't yet advanced a congressional redistricting map. So it's possible that when the House comes up with a plan, it may be more akin to the governor's thinking, uh, you know, even if it does uh, have the destiny that the, the state will be in court being challenged where uh, it could sue, uh, or I'm sorry, where it, it could lose, uh, you know, under what seems to be conventional uh, redistricting law. But the fight is maybe what DeSantis wants. And uh, Texas has been sued by President Biden's Justice Department over its redistricting maps, which are seen as also reducing minority representation in Congress and the Texas legislature. And remember, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is like DeSantis, seen as a 2024 Republican presidential contender. And uh, it seems to me that DeSantis could be spoiling for another fight with Biden. You know, that, that carries some political resonance, obviously, among the conservative base out there that DeSantis and Abbott are uh, both trying to, to woo, you know. So, um, you know, it could also haul the state into a protracted court fight over congressional boundaries. And uh, we've been there before. The last round of redistricting lasted three years past the 2012 legislature. And those maps weren't finalized until 2015 when the legislature's congressional and Senate maps were thrown out and courts were the ones that ultimately wound up drawing the uh, current boundaries. So, you know, if DeSantis's map uh, gets favor, that, that could be the direction we're heading in again. But uh, DeSantis will get sort of the, the, the conservative uh, points out there maybe for uh, being a uh, combatant on uh, redistricting and uh, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Biden again. So, John, if he if this map was adopted, it would go from four uh, African-American majority districts to two. And you're saying you think that would probably invite a federal legal challenge under the Voting Rights Act. But DeSantis maybe doesn't care about that, that it's it, that that's 
good politics for him to be fighting with the the federal judiciary and and potentially the Biden yeah. administration on this? I think there is an element of that 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 uh, a fight is something that he may welcome, and uh, you know he can look to Texas as a model right now, which is in in court on uh, on on their plan. So maybe maybe that's what it's about because it seems hard to imagine how the state could uh, could really you know legitimately make the case that. Uh, somehow minority representation is fair if uh, the number of uh, black access seats are reduced by half. Antonio, what do you make of the latest developments here on redistricting? Well, you know, I'll leave the machinations, maneuverings, and motivations to you guys because you cover the governor much closer than I do. But some voters I spoke with this week say they see this as a governor just trying to run up the score in 2022 by tilting the playing field even more in the GOP's favor but in the process, perhaps risking an unforced error. The way they see it is Florida has been trending Republican for the past decade. And as we have said in the past in this podcast, GOP voters now outnumber Democrats for the first time in forever. In addition, there is no threat that Republicans will lose their healthy majorities in either the Florida House or the state Senate. In fact, they think they can sweep all the executive positions again in 2022 by adding the Commission of Agriculture and Consumer Services posts now occupied by the lone statewide elected Democrat, Nikki Freed. At this point in the past two elections, I will also point out, uh, I've been I was hearing from you know these red to blue groups spinning plans to bring a Democratic majority to one of the chambers in the state capitol. You know, that's not been the case this year. It probably because there's no visible path to this happening in red Florida in what is expected to be a red wave midterm. And in fact, if it didn't happen the last two elections that Democrats had a more favorable environment than this year, how, how do how would that even happen this time? And then you look, take a look at Congress. The Miami Herald reported this week that Democrats are having trouble recruiting competitive candidates to run in two purplish South Florida districts, numbers 26 and 27. Those are districts, districts that were held by Democrats Donna Shalala and Debbie Mercosul Powell until the 2020 elections. Uh, meanwhile, you know, the extra congressional seat, as John mentioned, that is coming to Florida is certainly going to be a GOP lock of a seat. And then there will be at least three departing House Democrats Congressman Charlie Chris is vacating his St. Pete district to run for governor. Orlando's Val Deming is running for U.S. governor. And Stephanie Murphy, also from the Orlando area, is retiring. So those districts might end up being more favorable to a Republican. I know from the 20, you know, 2020 elections, you know, Republicans made a big effort in recruiting Hispanic candidates in, in that Orlando area, particularly from the Puerto Rican community. Uh, so you can see where legislative Republicans may want to dispense with the district map withdrawing since they are in the catbird seat and instead focus on red meat issues like abortion and wokeness in schools and businesses that will satisfy the base and get rewarded by GOP voters in the fall elections, rather than ending up, like Johnson mentioned, in a big fighting, fighting big time legal battles over an issue that average residents really don't engage. Yeah, and it's pretty interesting that the Senate uh, advanced uh, its own map and and not uh, DeSantis's. Uh, you know, you would think that they have to take him into account. Uh, at some point since he has uh, veto power here. So we'll see how this develops. Um, I don't think that these are the, the final maps that we're going to see. Well, as DeSantis was weighing in on redistricting, he also was involved in an emerging feud with Trump that's receiving quite a bit of attention. We talked last week about how Trump called politicians such as DeSantis who won't disclose their vaccine booster status, quote, gutless. Trump is annoyed with DeSantis because the governor won't rule out running against Trump in 2024. 
Well, shortly after Trump's uh, gutless comment, DeSantis appeared to fire back, saying he regrets not pushing back harder against the national lockdown that Trump supported early in the pandemic. Then Trump ally Roger Stone weighed in this week, saying that DeSantis is, quote, not smart, not honest, and not going to be president. Stone also threw some more juvenile uh, insults DeSantis' way, calling him a, quote, fat boy. Antonio, Roger Stone is never subtle in his criticism, but so far Trump and DeSantis themselves aren't necessarily an open warfare. They seem to be engaging in kind of some more veil needling of each other. Florida Republicans have to be pretty nervous, though, right? Because if this escalates further, it could force people to choose sides and uh, it could get pretty ugly. Well, you know, let's first say where we are. I mean, we've been talking about this simmering feud now for many months, but you don't have a political mud fight until Roger Stone enters the picture. And guess what? We're in a mucky South Florida canal right now. You know, look, the way that we, we said this before, that, you know, this fight right now is not in either DeSantis's or Trump's political interests. You know, DeSantis is running for governor and he needs a Trump base behind him, just as he did back in 2018 when he stunned the GOP establishment by trouncing Adam Putnam in that primary, largely on the coattails of a Trump endorsement tweet. As for Trump, he has successfully established himself as the undisputed kingmaker in the GOP. His, his endorsement is the most coveted of any GOP primary candidate for incumbents and challengers alike. The verbal sparring with DeSantis, even if veiled, raises the question of vulnerability for Trump. And as we said last week, you know, Trump is seeing vulnerability. He's being rebuffed, for example, not just, you know, because in the in the U.S. Senate, where his call to depose Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has fallen on deaf ears. So the idea that you know, Trump is con conveying here, perhaps unwittingly, is that he sees DeSantis as a formidable challenger, maybe in the process showing a little bit of fear. That's never a good look for Trump's alpha male brand. That being said, it's not DeSantis who threw the first punch here. And we know about this, this about the governor. He's pugnacious and he'll fight back. He's no wallflower. And the sparring with Trump for DeSantis has allowed him to test his strength against the former, or as President Biden would say, the defeated president. And that strength test has had some pretty positive results for DeSantis. It's brought him more attention, money, and has bought publicity for his free state mantra. Which brings up a question, as you noted, Zach, this verbal volleying should be making Florida Republicans a little bit uncomfortable at the onset of an election year in which they should feel totally comfortable. But so far, it's been more needling than mudslinging, and the voters I spoke with aren't that worried about it, and really not even that engaged in the, in the back and forth either. So the question I posed to them is, you know, what would be the red lines? What would be the lines they would not want to see either political leader cross in their back and forth? For DeSantis, I was told, it would be for the governor to raise Trump's 2020 election loss in a way that torpedoes the former president's already false and unsubstantiated claims of election fraud. For Trump, it would be to note that the uh, 60,000 plus Floridians who have died from COVID in the free state of Florida. And what are the chances of either would? Zip, zero, not on no way, these voters said, at least not until November 9th of this year. I wonder, Antonio, do you think this is risky for DeSantis? I mean, to to sort of, um, you know, I, he's not rejecting Trump, but he's not uh, bending to to what he wants here. And, you know, he has maintained or he he's grown uh, his own base uh, here in Florida with his COVID policies. But is he really strong enough to really uh, take on Trump if this uh, got into open warfare? We've been talking about this being risky all along for the last few months. And I think we got to start looking at the fact that, you know, maybe it's not that risky. Maybe, in fact, you know, he's 
while he's been, you know, this little simmering war has been going on, you know, DeSantis has been raising millions and millions and millions more dollars. So you know, it clearly is showing this little feud is allowing him to show his strength against Trump. And, and going back to last April, you know, our reporter, you know, Wendy Rhodes went to a Club 45 Trump fan club breakfast and talked to people there. And she came back and she was hearing that even as far back as April, people say, you know, they like DeSantis because he's Trump without the baggage. So I, and you, we had Ken Griffin's, you know, of the um, the Regeneron, uh, the, the anti the monoclonal antibody group. And he was talking about he's raised a ton of money for Republicans and raised a lot of money for Trump. And the middle of last year or so, he said that it was time for the GOP to move away from Trump and that this allows DeSantis the space to say, well, if you're looking to move away, hey, here I am without clearly saying it, because after all, he's still running for governor. You can't run for two offices at the same time, and it wouldn't be a good look for him to be out even talking about the presidency right now. So, you know, yeah, it, on the surface, it's always seemed risky. But the fact of the matter, it seems to be paying off for DeSantis. Well, one thing we know about Trump is that he's not going to loosen his grip on the GOP willingly. And all reports are that uh, DeSantis's behavior has really annoyed him. So it'll be interesting to see if he continues to take some shots uh, at the governor going forward and how DeSantis reacts. Well, while much of Florida's political world fixates on the Trump-DeSantis feud, the Florida legislature is plodding forward with an array of bills, including one pushed by DeSantis that would put new restrictions on how race is taught in schools and in workplace training programs. John, what are people saying about this bill? Well, it's sort of an outgrowth of we've seen the governor declare war on critical race theory that, you know, well, it's not really taught in schools, uh, legal and academic theory that slavery and the long roots of racism have shaped much of how we still act and the, the policies that we advance in this nation. But, um, you know, it, it, it's an interesting theory that gained more attention during the Black Lives Matter protests of a year ago. But if you watch Fox News or follow conservative media, you'd think critical race theory is everywhere. Um, you know, mostly it's seen as making white people feel guilty about what has occurred in this country. And for Fox watching Republicans, uh, well, that's not a very happy place to be. So outlawed. That's the conclusion of a lot of Republican politicians, which uh, brings us to Ron DeSantis again. Uh, DeSantis in November, he called for a new Stop Woke Act from the legislature. He says he wants to let parents sue school districts if their parents, uh, if their kids are exposed to critical race theory, which uh, DeSantis got the State Board of Education to ban from schools last summer, even though, again, it's it's not directly taught in any Florida schools. They also banned the New York Times 1619 Project, a uh, detailed historical look at slavery that the uh, chairman of the Board of Education said he supported banning, even though he also said he wasn't familiar with it. So um, the legislation that's now advanced in the Senate Education Committee this week on a party line vote, that would bar any teaching in grades K through 12 that could make individuals feel responsible for historic wrongs because of their race, color, sex, or national origin. At, at work, employment practices or training programs that make an individual feel guilty on similar grounds could be considered an unlawful employment practice and uh, subject a company to a lawsuit. 
Um, the Senate sponsor of this bill, that's uh, Miami Republican uh, Senator Manny Diaz, he said uh, his quote was, we cannot hit the students with that because you're from this group that you're automatically sexist or racist. The discussion has to be had for students to critically think and understand what was wrong and how we move past it or haven't moved past it. Well, you know, that, that, that sounds kind of fine, but critics said that this micromanaging approach of discussions of controversial topics will, will just lead to censorship, you know, lawsuits and really more problems for teachers. And at work, employment practices or training programs that make an individual feel guilty on similar grounds could be considered an unlawful employment practice. Uh, th that's a potential problem in, in the workplace. Senator Tina Polsky, a, a Boca Raton Democrat, she said that the proposal really threatens Florida businesses. She said the legislation opens the door to lawsuits against employer, employers. And she cited an example that, you know, how about this? A male employee is dismissed from a company or passed over for a promotion. Maybe they could make a claim that employment diversity efforts worked against him. Um, Senator Lori Berman, who's a Delray Beach Democrat, she said the legislation uh, she, has too much vagueness. She said if, if, if a student feels that they've been indoctrinated and a teacher disagrees, uh, who's going to decide who's correct? Well, Diaz said that such classroom complaints could make their way to the State Board of Education and its Education Practices Commission. So, um, you know, that's kind of where we're headed. DeSantis's war against critical race theory, something that's not really taught, is, is guiding us toward maybe more lawsuits and more complaints to government agencies. But it's uh, pretty certain that this legislation will win approval from a Republican-led legislature that is beholden to the governor on most matters, especially when it comes to these matters in the culture war arena. Yeah, and you know when something is called the Stop Woke Act that it's going to be uh, politically controversial and uh, kind of tapping into the political zeitgeist here on the right. And so that seems to be something that DeSantis is eager to to take on here. It's been a big issue uh, nationally for Republicans, and uh, this bill is attracting some some national uh, attention. Uh, it's going to be one to watch as the legislature moves forward. We'll move on to some numbers here. Antonio, you want to tell us about yours? Yeah, gents, today is January 20th, the first anniversary of President Biden soaring in as POTUS number 46. And number two represents the number of times the president and vice president Kamala Harris have been to Florida in their first year in office, twice as once for Biden when he visited the scene of a collapsed building in Surfside last summer, and once for Harris in her visit to Jacksonville months before as part of an effort to raise awareness of the COVID relief package of the American Rescue Act. Rather than Florida, Biden has been spending a lot of his time traveling to the mid to Midwest battleground states, and plus a couple of visits to Georgia at the very least. Uh, the relative bypassing of the Sunshine State probably reflects the fact that Florida, once a pivotal swing state, is now viewed by national pundits and strategists as a red state. Nonetheless, Florida did receive more than $100 billion in Rescue Act funds and will be getting a pile of federal cash from that infrastructure legislation. The Republicans in Congress snubbed the Rescue Act, even though Republicans in Tallahassee eagerly spent the funds and took credit for bonuses to public employees and crowed about a record state fiscal budget that was made possible because, at least in part, of the Biden bucks. Florida congressional Democrats are working hard to make it clear they were the ones that brought home the infrastructure dollars. I'm getting almost daily press releases and invites for telephone town halls by local Democrats to tout the infrastructure funds they voted to obtain for the state 
and their local communities. On Wednesday, for example, the topic was a $1.1 billion in money for earmarked for the Everglades Restoration Project. The day before is all about, quote unquote, green energy saving buses, quote unquote, for Palm Beach County. Last Friday was money for three new bridges here. But no one has a bigger megaphone than Biden and Harris. And they're largely bypassing the Sunshine State has been a loss for efforts to promote Florida Democrats. And the unintended message, perhaps, being sent is that Florida is not winnable. And that's a message that won't bode well for Florida Democrats seeking higher office in this year's midterm elections. Not uh, too much attention from the Biden administration for Florida so far. Uh, John, you want to tell us about uh, your number? Yeah, Zach, my three, that's the number of legal holidays that still exist in Florida to honor Confederates and the Confederacy. And State Senator Lauren Book of Broward County wants to get rid of them. But it's not that easy. For the third time in five years, Book has filed legislation to do away with the state's recognition of Robert E. Lee's birthday, which was just Wednesday this week, uh, January 19th. Um, Jefferson Davis's birthday is June 3rd, and Confederate Memorial Day is April 26th, and it's uh, all on the books in Florida as uh, as holidays, uh, state-recognized. Uh, Senator Dennis Baxley is an Ocala Republican, and he's one of the more outspoken opponents to removing these holidays. He said that, you know, some ancestor fought for the Confederacy, but he also defends the holidays as saying, you know, you can't get rid of history. Although uh, book supporters, who include many members of the Legislative Black Caucus, uh, are are quick to point out that that history Florida is celebrating also includes the ownership of slaves. So, um, you know, Florida has made some strides. The state agreed to replace at the U.S. Capitol's uh, statutory hall the um, statue of former uh, Confederate General Kirby Smith. They replaced him now with uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, the um, famed black educator and founder of what is now Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona Beach. And uh, Confederate memorials, of course, came down in several Florida cities with many of the removals during the uh, summer of 2017, not long after the uh, tragedy involving the uh, white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. But the um, Confederate holidays seem a lot harder to erase. Uh, They're clearly a relic of a bygone age. They continue to exist, though, right there in Florida Statute uh, 683.01, the list of legal holidays right next to Flag Day, Susan B. Anthony's birthday, Shrove Tuesday, better known as Mardi Gras, and the commemoration of the man who assured that we don't have a Confederacy, Lincoln's birthday. Florida, where we're still battling over the Confederacy in 2022. My number is 72,073. That's how many abortions were performed in Florida in 2020. Of that number, 70,594 were performed in the first trimester, which is within the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. That's important to keep in mind as the Florida legislature advances a bill that would ban all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. That bill cleared its first House committee this week, And it's a big change from current law, which makes abortion illegal until a fetus is viable outside the womb, which is generally considered around 24 weeks of pregnancy. But an abortion ban after 15 weeks of pregnancy wouldn't outlaw the vast majority of abortions in this state. Only around 1,500 abortions were performed after the cutoff in 2020. The 15-week abortion ban seems very likely to pass. Governor Ron DeSantis came out in support of it, and legislative leaders are firmly behind it. It's going to get a lot of pushback from Democrats and a lot of debate. 
but it's worth noting that it will impact a relatively small number of women each year. That wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy, and thanks to all of you for listening. We're out of here.